what's very clear to me is that this was a rescue operation by God. It was a rescue operation because I was not going to be able to save myself. I, I dug myself effectively into a pit. What happened early on in my prosecution was that I had a decision to make. And that decision involved whether I was going to fight for my old life or effectively give up my fight and trust Jesus to give me a new life. This is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. In 2011, Chip Skorun was sentenced to five years in prison for insider trading. It was a spectacular fall for a hugely successful hedge fund manager and medical doctor. As he prepared for life in prison, he found comfort in the Bible. Skorun has embraced a new life, even if he misses the past. And it's not the life in Greenwich, Connecticut, titan of capital he misses. He misses the simplicity and fellowship of life in prison. Chip, welcome and thank you. It's good to be here. Nice to be with you, Bill. Your story is almost biblical. It's quite an amazing story. Um, It's a long story, but it's one that you have to hear to understand this trip of huge uh, high-flying success, crash and redemption, and, uh, and the role that faith played in all of that. So why don't we start? Uh, tell us your story. Well, I, it's, in order to understand my story, I think you have to understand where it starts. Um, I grew up in Florida, and I was the son of um, a man named Joe Scourn, who was a rocket scientist, and my dad, and um, a brilliant man, and... Uh, my mother, Janet Scourin, who had moved uh, to Florida, and both of them were part of the beginning of the space program in Florida. And uh, I was born uh, July 15th, uh, 1969, which was um, one day before my dad uh, launched Neil Armstrong and the other members of Apollo 11 to go walk on the moon. So uh, it was an exciting time uh, in my family's life and in uh, the history of mankind. Growing up in Florida um, was uh, quite um, special. It was uh, growing up with a father who um, was a very hard worker, a very disciplined man, a man who saw things through to the finish, um, but largely was not available emotionally. And uh, the son of a mother who... Um, I loved and she loved me very dearly, and she was a very sensitive and uh, passionate woman, especially when it came to people. I grew up at a a very early age um, having a fairly traumatic event that happened when I was around 11 years old. My father uh, fell and uh, was unconscious, and uh, at that moment, um, seeing my father uh, hurting and being incapable of helping him uh, left me feeling uh, helpless in a way that I, I was really um, terrified by. And I, that really, for me, uh, set me on a path towards becoming a doctor. And my mother and my father, but primarily my mother, really encouraged that, uh, that pursuit. And so uh, that really shaped my uh, formative years of high school, um, although I had uh, numerous bouts of near 
complete destruction with uh, uh, drug use and experimentation and um, managed, however, uh, by the grace of God, quite frankly, to make it through all of that and wind up going to school at Vanderbilt. At Vanderbilt, uh, I continued to pursue my, uh, my career in medicine, and on the day that I was accepted to medical school um, at Yale, uh, my mother was killed in a car accident. So it was an incredibly uh, traumatic and, and um, hard day for me that, uh, again, left me feeling uh, very afraid, um, very uh, helpless, especially when it came to my feelings of sorrow around the loss of my mother. And uh, I really began to run away from those feelings. I began to try to engage uh, everything around me in such a way that I didn't have to feel um, because those feelings were so overwhelming. And, um, and I wound up uh, achieving that goal of, of becoming a doctor and, um, and wound up at, at Harvard, actually, um, married to my wife, who I had uh, met while I was in medical school, uh, having a family, pursuing my career in orthopedics, and, uh, and made a decision um, very late in my training at Harvard that uh, I didn't want to practice medicine for the rest of my life. At that point, um, I pursued other careers and found an opportunity. Uh, actually, it found me. Um, in finance at a, at a hedge fund called SAC Capital. And that's where I began to uh, really have uh, material success in a way that I didn't really ever imagine that one could have, that I certainly would ever have, and quite frankly, uh, that I ever really wanted. Um, that success, however, uh, began to expose, if you will, in me, kind of the reality of, of who I was. Um, and by the time that I had built my own business and had um, a number of people working with me and, and for me, and uh, we were um, having, uh, you know, a great deal of success in, in the investment management business, um, I had really begun to pursue material wealth and material pleasures in a way that I hadn't, um, well, uh, I didn't realize how far my life had gone down that path. And um, so for me, as I look back on the most traumatic event of my recent life, which was the uh, indictment and uh, prosecution and, and ultimate, ultimately my incarceration, going to prison, um, I'm to a place now where I look at it and I am much more thankful for it than I am uh, brokenhearted by, by it. You mentioned your indictment. We'd better explain why you were indicted for what and uh, what, what the crime was. So in... Uh, in December and January, December 2007 and January 2008, um, my fund was involved in a particular investment, and I received a, a phone call from a physician about a clinical trial that that company was involved in. And I chose to sell the stock 
And when investors who had bought the stock from us complained to the SEC about it, I lied to the SEC about what we had done and why we had done it. And as a result, I pled guilty to conspiracy to commit securities fraud and obstruction of justice. And I was sentenced to five years in the the Federal Bureau of Prisons. I had uh, millions of dollars of restitution that I had to pay back to people that had been harmed by what I had done. So in January 6, 2012, I reported to federal prison, and um, I wound up uh, serving 48 months in prison and paying back uh, those who had been harmed by my decisions. Of course, many other people were harmed by those choices that I made, including uh, coworkers uh, at my firm, um, people that we did business with, um, people in my community, my family. Um, you know, there were there was a lot of hardship around the kind of person that I'd become. Uh, you mentioned your family. You have a wife uh, and four children. Is that correct? Yes. And um, uh, is your wife a professional person? Uh, so my wife, when we, when we met, she was a writer. And uh, after we uh, had had two children, our uh, oldest two, she decided to become a full-time homemaker. So um, she was professional, and, and now she is probably more professional raising four children. We now have four teenagers at home, so it's busy. And uh, professional dealing with you. Um, the, the, the question remains, and you know, in many ways the most powerful part of this, you're, you're a man that uh, had risen to the very top, uh, had uh, wound up going to prison, uh, and had huge wealth down to, I assume, almost no wealth or huge debt, uh, but your family stuck with you, and you obviously stuck with them, but the fact that they stuck with you through all that, what does all that say, and how did, how did that work, and was, what was the role of God and faith in all of that? Well, I mean, thank you for pointing that out, Bill. It's, you know, uh, it is probably the most um, visible miracle of my entire circumstance that my, that my wife has stayed with me. Um, the statistics are that 99% of marriages where uh, a spouse is incarcerated for more than three years end in divorce, it is, um, it is a miracle. Um, and it is much more that she stuck with me than I stuck with her. There's no question about that. Um, you know, I think that as, as my situation evolved and as the humiliation and the uh, prosecution evolved and, and the penalties became more and more apparent, both financial and in, in terms of incarceration, um, that part of it wasn't really the hard part. The hard part was my wife coming to the realization that she wasn't married to the guy that she thought she was married to, that I'd been, I'd been living a double life effectively, where I acted like a, a good father and a good husband while I was here, but the moment that I left, I acted and largely had a completely different life. And um, although that is hard to imagine in the abstract, it got very real for her on one particular day in October when 
she declared that if if I was going to want her to forgive me, that she would have to know everything. And so a few days in front of our 15th wedding anniversary, I came completely clean with her. And that was devastating. Of course, three months later, I I went away to prison. And um, I had no idea what the outcome would be. I know that I hoped and I prayed about what that outcome would be. But quite frankly, a large part of the reason, in fact, maybe even the whole reason why we're still together is because my wife actually has uh, a more profound faith in many ways than I do. You went to prison, uh, uh, a man of incredible wealth and uh, then crashed. Um, You had to be in prison where most of the people are poor and underprivileged, radioactive with them. You were radioactive with the community that you came from of wealthy, powerful people who didn't want anything to do with a felon uh, for numerous reasons, including show. Where did... God come into all of this and your kind of new found faith that got you through one of the greatest, uh, almost biblical crashes of all time? Well, I mean, uh, certainly my crash is um, very personal, but um, what's very clear to me is that this was a rescue operation by God. It was a rescue operation because I was not going to be able to save myself. I I dug myself effectively into a pit. What happened early on in my prosecution was that I had a decision to make. And that decision involved whether I was going to fight for my old life or effectively give up my fight and trust Jesus to give me a new life. And the scripture that really made that clear to me was the, the place in Matthew where, uh, where Jesus said that the man who would save his life will lose it, but the man who will lose his life for my sake, he'll show, he shall find it. And so when I read that scripture, the day that I was to make that decision, I knew what my choice had to be. Um, that was the beginning of a journey of finding out who this person of Jesus really is and beginning to understand what it is to follow him, to trust him. And that began to inform all of my decisions going forward. But, but it started with this understanding that if I, were, if I was really going to follow him, it meant doing things radically differently than I had ever done before, not trusting common sense, but trusting him trusting him with the beginning, the middle, and the end of this whole new chapter for my life. And so I effectively went into prison January 6th in love with the Lord, in love with him and trusting him. And uh, that was a very divisive place to be in my house because not only had the circumstances come between me and my wife and, and my whole world, now my faith in the Lord, my faith in Jesus 
was even further setting me apart from everyone that we had been a part of. And um, that was a hard thing for her and for me. I went into prison, though, and that time for me, quite frankly, although you're right, in some ways I was very different than everyone else, but in some ways prison is, a, is an equalizer. And um, that allowed me to, to really become part of the community in a way that I'd never been part of a community my whole life. I mean, community in prison is unique, and I'm not saying it's unique from every other community. I would imagine that, you know, people who are fighting in wars on front lines, you know, have a, a very intimate community. There are other people in hardships around the world of all kinds that have this kind of community. Prison is just the kind that I had such a, an intimate exposure to. And I have to say, um, it's something that I miss. I really miss it. And so for me, the time inside wasn't the hard part. For my family, that was the hard part. That was the part where there was isolation and tension and emotional decay and um, things were hard. Things were hard for my wife. You know, without me around, um, our, our children were growing and, and becoming increasingly uh, challenging as teenagers often will be. And um, it was hard here. How did they get through it? Because in many ways, that story's more redemptive, more powerful than the one that you had, which was focused. And we'll, well, it's so complicated, and nuanced. We'll, we'll we'll try to parse it out a bit. So, but can you answer that? Do you know? I mean, I, I know ultimately what has held this family together uh, is the love of God. And there's no question in my mind, that's what a miracle is, right? It's his love and uh, undeserved love. So um, I can tell you that there were many, many people praying for me and my family. But that story really is not my story. That's a story that I've heard told by my daughter uh, Carly, my, my daughter Jessica, um, by my son. I've, I've heard e- excerpts of that story from them in a number of settings, including at school or sometimes my son has come with me. My sons have come with me to New Canaan Society where men uh, are interested in hearing about the sadness and the joys of life. Um, but it's, uh, it's not my story. I wasn't here. Let's do it now. Uh, Chip, tell us about the people that you need to help you on this journey. It's not one you're doing alone. Well, I mean, that's probably part of the the thing that led me to the place where I needed saving uh, in such a dramatic way because I was I was constantly in my life taught and striving to be independent, to do things on my own, to uh, reject the the ordinary in favor of you know what what I was uh, pursuing. When things changed for me and. Jesus became a real relationship for me, someone who I trusted. What I saw and what I found most comforting is that people came around me. And I'm talking about people like David Miller here in town of the Greenwich Leadership Forum or B.J. Weber, one of my dearest friends and spiritual mentors from the New Canaan Society or 
uh, a man like Jack Deere, who not only uh, led me to Jesus, but also has been mentoring me along my way now. Um, These are men who have taken very seriously the call to make disciples of nation, of nations. And they are intentional about that. And these men have come alongside me. They've taught me. They've listened to me. And, um, and we have walked together in a way that I, I, can't, I can't do this. I can't make this journey on my own. And what I understand now is that, that that's, not, that's not the intention. The intention is not that we have this journey on our own, but that we do it together cooperatively. And so I spend a lot of time in prison. That's true. But I also spend time with the New Cane Society and with my local church and, and Bible study and, and doing things together with, with that community. And I, that's, I need that. I, I mean, I actively seek it out. I set aside time for it because if I don't have that, I know me and it's very easy for me to get distracted by the things of the world. It's, it's a beautiful place to live. There are many attractive things that my eyes see all the time. And unless I'm surrounded by men who are also pursuing the things of God, uh, I'm going to get lost. It's so easy to develop a greed in this society because of all the powerful advertising and the, you know the broad society itself. Um, how do you turn that off? Well, I mean, I certainly can't turn it all off, um, and I and I don't even try to. But I do limit the amount of time that I spend engaging with the media and engaging with the internet. Um, I, I, as I mentioned, I spend intentional time sitting with my brothers and sisters free from other distractions where I can look people in the eye and we have hours to talk about life and, you know, uh, we, we, we don't often talk about politics, but we talk about, uh, you know, the, the challenges of being a father, of being a friend, of being a son. We talk about um, relationships. We talk, but we also talk about fun things like um, like cars or food or you know travel or experiences. Uh, it's you know it's a rich time to be engaging with one another, and I find that the engagement that I get through you know social media or other outlets is um, is fake. It's uh, it lacks it lacks the intimacy and the and the and the nuance of personal dynamics that really make a relationship rich. The, um, the story of your faith, your newfound faith, now you grew up in faith, but this was almost a, uh, you know, this was a kind of born-again moment, literally. Um, so this was not traditional faith, uh, you know, a, a, a mainline religion. This was something entirely new that came on to you under huge social pressure, going to prison and everything else. Did people just think maybe he's lost his mind? Oh, I'm, I'm, sure, they, I'm sure they still do. <laughs> but um, yes, I grew up with what I would describe as, a, as religion. Um, religion being a, a tradition, a, 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 a way of going about doing things so that uh, you can imagine God would be pleased with you. And uh, that, that, for me, is a very different type of uh, pursuit than a relationship. And I didn't really have a connection, a direct relationship 
with God um, because I didn't know that he was available for it, to be honest with you. I couldn't have imagined that he was available uh, for that kind of relationship. And, and you said the words exactly right. You know, I, you know I'm 50, and uh, I feel better today than I did when I was 40. And I feel younger. I feel more alive. One day is completely different than the next. And, uh, and it's an exciting journey to be on, very challenging. Um, but ultimately, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. And if anything, I look back on my life and the things that I had pursued for 40, more than 40 years. And it just seems, I mean, it seems like it was chasing the wind. Uh, it, it's, um, I'm sad that it took me so long to have this relationship with Jesus. Now, this relationship was, of course, triggered by the great difficulties of your life. Um, is th- there must be easier ways to get there than the way you did, uh, because you know that's a big penance to pay for faith. I I definitely know there are many great men of God who have not had to be kicked from a horse. <laughs> or any other uh, circumstance like mine. But I can tell you that what I have found over the last, well, since 2012, I have found that the men who, who have come to a faith in and through the circumstances around incarceration in particular have a particular, uh, there's, there's a depth of, of that particular type of faith that's just... Um, very attractive to me. That's one of the main reasons why I, I go back to prison now. It's not because I'm trying to give back. I mean, that's just a profound misunderstanding about why the people who are involved with New Canaan Society inside, why we do what we do. It's because we all have come to an understanding that we're getting more out of spending time with those brothers inside than we are giving by, by every measure. Um, we'd better describe what the NCS is, <clears throat> which I think you partly did, but you founded an organization along with a very famous rock star, uh, Biggs, uh, Biggs Burke, whom uh, I didn't know, but I'm just because I'm too old. Uh, better describe this organization and kind of what you're doing and why the people you're trying to help and that are helping you uh, uh, directly and indirectly, uh, whether they have a chance of making it, because we hear so many people wind wind up going back into prison. Well, remember, Paul himself, St. Paul, was a recidivist. And uh, so I, I certainly wouldn't characterize a failure as having to go back into prison. Um, but that being said, the New Canaan Society is an organization that started in New Canaan, Connecticut, um, in the living room of a man named uh, Jim Lane, who is a very dear friend and brother to me. And um, that organization, uh, which was basically built around the idea of being friends with one another and Jesus, um, has grown to become a very large national movement. And uh, the New Canaan Society inside is a part of that uh, movement that is focused specifically on reaching out to our brothers and sisters who are in prison 
or are about to go into prison or who have come out. And, um, and so here we've, we've started uh, a, an effort with the Bridgeport Correctional Center in Connecticut. There are others who are part of the New Cane Society in Connecticut who are doing amazing work and have been doing it long before I was incarcerated with men and women in prison. Uh, there's a gentleman named Ron Evans who's up in Hartford. Um, and, and what I am seeing right now is an increased awareness, not, not inside, but out here in our communities around the fact that, that these people who are going through this are not, just, uh, are not just people that need help. They're actually precious and they are of great worth and it's unbelievably rewarding to spend time with them. Everything you hear about the American prison system is that it's a highly broken, ineffective system, and it's huge. Um, you seem to have used prison to help you in a whole other way, through finding God through prison, etc. But are the, was there any part of the system, the institutional system, that worked for you, that works at all? Absolutely. I mean... Um the people. I mean, ultimately, the system is not going to care for anyone. But the people in the system, many of them are amazing. And You mean the people that work in the system? Exactly right. So, and, and by the way, you know, we're specifically talking about the system of prisons. I, I would make the distinction between that and the the system that actually puts people there, so that's a that's a that would be a different system. That system, would you comment on that system? The 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 jurisprudence system that wound up putting you in prison, and do you think it was fair? Well, it, it's it's not for me to ju- to judge fair, but uh, the criminal justice system is a distinct entity from the Bureau of Prisons and the Department of Corrections for each state and the local jails, those, those, are, those are very different. And in every system, in every system, there are people who are capable of great compassion and great love and great care. And I have met many of them. And in fact, you know, um, I am as excited to see some of the corrections officers who I go, uh, who, who happen to be at work when I go into a Bridgeport Correctional Center, as I am to see some of the inmates. They're, they're wonderful people, and, um, and we pray for them, and, uh, and I love them. Um, unfortunately, the system is quite toxic, and, uh, and specifically what I mean by that is um, it, it's a system that divides us. It insulates. It, it separates, um, and, and that's intentional. Right there's a there's a a fear that allowing people who are suffering in that particular way, allowing those people to come together for peer support, for emotional support, for uh, the support of loved ones from the outside, or for children to come in, that 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 having that kind of connection might be dangerous. Right, that there could be communication or and and to be fair, there are times. When that has been dangerous, but by and large, it's not dangerous. And more importantly, that divisiveness is toxic. It cuts people off. 
And when you cut people off from community, that's when the worst things happen. So if, if you think about how systems around the world might address this differently and you think about places like Portugal or other places where there is an inclusiveness in the process of incarceration where families are encouraged and supported in, in being around and, and, and supporting the, 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 the people who are incarcerated. Um, moreover, as they transition out of incarceration into the community and communities are engaging in a very real way and inmates are allowed to associate with one another and support one another as they reenter, I mean that kind of peer support we encourage and we know works in everything from alcoholism to divorce to cancer survivorship to all kinds of traumas in our, in our society. It makes sense that we should be encouraging that when it comes to this particular kind of suffering. Uh, we know the Germans do. We know the German prison system is very much that way and apparently uh, very successful. Back to faith. Um, where are you in the family right now in your faith mission, uh, in your faith journey? Uh, where, are you, where are you trying to go? Where, or are you going somewhere with it? <laughs> oh, I know where I'm going. <laughs> um, and I'm so thankful for that, that I know today where I'm going and who I am. Um, no, I don't have a long-term plan. I just know that I wake up every day thinking about my brothers and sisters who are going through this particular kind of suffering, and I am not willing to ignore it for the sake of my professional career, for the sake of um, putting it behind me. Um, I, I have to be there. I have to be with them. It's the highlight of my of my week on the days when I get to go and be with my brothers who are are there. Uh, I don't know what the future holds for me. I don't know. I know that um, I'm thankful to be uh, with my wife, and um, I'm very thankful to have these uh, these last few years with my children. Um, I was gone for four years, and very important and exciting years of their lives, all four of them. Um, this summer, we have four teenagers at home. It's crazy, and it's wonderful, and I get to be here for that. Um, I, I do hope that over the coming months and years, we see members of our community out here thinking about and engaging with those people who are suffering from the, from the prison system um, in a way that uh, allows them to come back to our communities and to be embraced and celebrated, not, not just uh, supported but celebrated in that they have a new chance, a new life. And, um, and in many ways, many of them are, um, are more skilled at, at, at ways of living today that, than, than we are because they've had this opportunity to be very, very present with each other. Right. I mean, we're we're also, and I myself am so distracted by everything that the media and the news and my electronic devices feed me that I wind up forgetting a lot about the nuance of relationship, the importance of relationship, and and there, it's what we have, and it's 
it's um it's it's worth spending time on and they get to do that this is so unusual where in a sense you're almost saying that prison has good elements it has good elements because it forces people to deal with one another, not to escape electronically or uh, or in some passion of uh, raising money and greed. I, I mean, that's. I, I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. One of the one of the most important healing steps that our family took when I came home, and coming home has been the hardest part of my journey, was actually going on two RV trips as a family, where literally we took all six of us and crammed crammed into. A, uh, a mobile home for three weeks and drove around forced to engage with one another, good and bad. And um, it brought us closer in a way that, you know, my goal of having a, a big house on a hill um, really just allowed us to separate from one another when we really needed to be engaging. Well, the RV was the physical constraint that we needed. And for, for me, prison was that too. Uh, do you think you'll ever go back into medicine? You're a medical doctor. Uh, 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 I don't know whether you're still licensed or allowed to be licensed or not. But, uh, uh, you know, getting away from the greed and the money and just using your gifts as a, uh, as a, a surgeon uh, uh, to help people that way as well. I definitely would be interested in um, in becoming licensed again. Uh, that's going to be a process, and I'm hopeful that I'll be able to work with uh, the Department of Public Health around that. But um, more importantly, you know, thinking about thinking about healing for me today is very different than I thought about it and the way I was taught to think about it while I was in medical school. You know. I was focused on the physical expression of disease, whether that be an infection, a broken bone, a, a sick pancreas, you know, a diseased limb, uh, a clogged artery. Those are very physical expressions often of a, of a much more complex and deeper rooted problem. And that medicine that I was learning was very constrained in the way it thought about that process. Today, I think about people and I understand about the human condition in a, in a much broader way, thinking about the not just the body but the soul and the spirit also uh, is important and thinking about mental health components to disease and much more deeper and profound issues, um, I think, quite frankly, makes me more qualified maybe than I have been in the past to think about healing, um, despite the fact that I haven't been licensed for quite a while. <laughs> um, uh, people listening to this Beliefs podcast are, I'm sure, wondering, they're saying what I'm saying, boy, I'm glad I didn't go through all of that. You know, a, a rise that high and a fall that low uh, would be almost impossible, I would think, emotionally to take. But you've now had life experiences that very few people have ever had and, a, and an observation that very few people have ever had from the top and from the bottom. Uh, without my and our listeners going through that themselves, how about some advice about faith and life and, you know, w- without having to, having to go through this difficulty? I, I mean, I... I can definitely say it starts with spending some time quiet. Um, 
being still and thinking about things that matter. Uh, I find it hard today to find that kind of quiet time, but being still and focusing my mind on things that are not about the day or the week or the month or the year, but things that really matter, asking the big questions. Why am I here? What is my purpose? What do I want my legacy to be? Who is going to talk about me, if anyone, when I'm gone, and what are they going to say? Um, Thinking about those kinds of questions, you know, brings to mind this, um, this thirst, if you will, for those answers. And for me, I wanted to have those answers. And my circumstances pushed me harder towards having those answers. I want people to understand there's, there's more to life than having the things that we want. Um, and I know that there are many people out there that were not pursuing that kind of success, and I'm so thankful for them. But uh, having the chance for me to think about eternal things, to knowing that, uh, that I have a purpose, why I, am, why I have been created, and that I can actually fulfill that purpose. Um, for me, those are, those are the most important questions, and, and I would encourage everyone from young to old to think about those kinds of questions, and it's, it's very hard to. The, the world is constantly pulling me away from asking those questions. Chip, thank you. My pleasure, Bill. Good to be with you. Our guest was Dr. Joseph Chip Skowron, former hedge fund manager, financier, and convicted inside trader. The conversation continues on our Facebook page, and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media public policy and education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is the producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening and please tell a friend.